This morning we look at the subject as the war on Christians. Um, I've heard some people who are not Christians say, uh, you people are paranoid, you know, or to think some of these things. But I want to look at this and what the Bible actually says, because has there been a war on Christians? Even in the 20th century, over um, uh, thousands have been killed for their faith. I don't know if you know this, there is a, a brother in the Churches of Christ who um, didn't really come out of, make it through World War II and the events that happened in Nazi Germany. He lived in Germany. His name was Hans Grimm. I guess that's very fitting for a name uh, living in Germany. Uh, and he was a preacher and a scholar among the Churches of Christ. And he reported that when the Holocaust was taking place and the horrible things that was happening under Nazi Germany, that over 100,000 members of the Churches of Christ were also executed through those events. And a lot of people don't talk about those events, kind of, I guess, greatly outnumbered by 6 million Jews and others who endured great things. But it's not just that. There are others throughout history, Christians who are enduring. I read, and I talked about this last week, every week I'm reading about um, the, the crimes going on in Nigeria of, of killing of Christians and villages being burned and destroyed. And all of these things are, you know, they're disturbing. But it's not just there. You hear about persecutions in China and churches being torn down. Hear about things that go on uh, throughout India when Hindus are persecuting Christians and beating them openly and mocking them. And so you can read about these things. It doesn't seem, if you, if you turn on mainstream television and look at the news, you're not going to hear these things. But if you go on and you, you find a... Um, Go to like ChristianHeadlines.com and other, go to Christian Chronicle, that's for the Churches of Christ. You'll read about some of these things that are going on. And I think we need to have a mindset and a way that we're going to be courageous as Christians, that we're going to stand our ground. And the book of Revelation helps us to do that. And I hope that we'll think about that some more. You ever talk to someone in code? I've had, um, I remember as a teenager, I had some people that were kind of frustrating to me. So I'd always talk to him in code. And uh, I remember this guy, he, um, he said, I think all religions and all, everybody in every religion is safe and they're going to be saved. And, and I started talking to him and I couldn't, I couldn't get through to him. And so I started talking in figures of speech. I said, you know, if we live a reckless life, we're in danger of fire. We've got to get in the water. He didn't understand what I was talking about a lot of times. But it was kind of my way of, of communicating, at least in the presence of others, they knew what I was saying to him, even though uh, he was like that. And there might be others, you know, you in certain situations where you talk to someone in code. Uh, if you've been a parent uh, and you've never spelled out something to your other spouse so that your children don't hear it, that, that, that you're talking in code, you ever spoken in pig Latin, you know, things like that. And so having children, sometimes Rachel and I will have to communicate in a way which they're not going to hear. And so when we think about those things, uh, we have a code here, and we've seen that, this symbolism in the book of Revelation, we've seen this in Jesus' speaking, and when he talks about certain things, and the way sometimes he's vague, and he's vague in a sense where believers will understand, because we want to know what Christ is saying, whereas unbelievers are not going to think deeply and want to apply what is being said there. And so that's how we're receiving this book, and oftentimes it's been said that in the context of persecution, this text is written in, and it is, and, and to keep it out of the wrong hands. And I think there's a lot of truth behind that. And this morning, we're going to be in Revelation chapter 12. So if you have your Bible, let's take a look here in Revelation 
12. We're going to read verses 1 through 6, make some quick observations from it. And the reason I want to do Revelation 12 specifically, and I was looking from Revelation 12 to 16, if I really want to make things hard this morning and give you a lot to think about, I would have done chapter 16. But I want to do something that's kind of simple for us to look at the symbols and not be intimidated. And I might have scared you last week, I don't know. But let's look at chapter 12, verses 1 through 6 right here, and see what we can understand about the text. It says here, a great sign appeared in heaven. So John is looking into heaven. He has a vision given to him by the Holy Spirit. It says, a woman clothed with the sun, with a moon under her feet, and on her head a crown of 12 stars. Okay, symbols. He's seeing these visions. It says, she was pregnant and was crying out in birth pangs and the agony of giving birth. And another sign appeared in heaven. And behold, a great red dragon with seven heads and ten horns and on his heads seven diadems. So those diadems are, are crowns. What is that about? His tail swept down a third of the stars of heaven and cast them to the earth. And the dragon stood before the woman who was about to give birth so that when she bore her child, he might devour it. She gave birth to a male child who is to rule all the nations with a rod of iron. But her child was caught up to God and to his throne. And the woman fled into the wilderness where she has a place prepared by God in which she is to be nourished for 1,260 days. There are a lot of symbols there. And about half of them, you might be wondering, what does that mean? But I think you probably get half of them. I hope you do. So as you're reading this, and the text is going to tell you, and if I were to ask you right now, who is the red dragon, would you be able to tell me? Hopefully most of us in here would say, yes, we know who it is. In fact, the rest of the chapter you keep reading tells you who the dragon is. This is Satan. And he's trying to devour a child, and it says this child bears an iron rod to rule the nations. Why is that? Why, who, who is that? So when you look at Psalm 2, and you read about the Messiah there in verse 9, you see about the coming Messiah, Christ, going to rule the nations. And so this child is born is very clearly Christ, the Messiah. And so then the question is, who's the woman? And some have thought, well, this woman, maybe she's Mary. But looking at the description here, having 12 stars, most scholars agree that this is a picture of Israel. So you have Israel here. Um, and you have Satan coming, trying to devour Christ. That's exactly what happened in the life of Christ. And we have it told to us in symbolic reasoning here. Now, we also see here that this woman escapes from the dragon, and it's for that number, 1,260 days. And you got this. You've got 42 months and these different numbers for days. And if you start counting them all up, you'll start noticing a pattern. Three and a half years, three and a half years, three and a half years. And so the completion of an event is usually seven years. And so what it's telling us is there's this event, and this is half of it. But then there's another half that's coming, Okay. So let's take a look here a little bit closer. Again, we have a pregnant woman with 12 stars in her crown. Again, symbolism. She gives birth to someone who's apparently the king who will rule all the nations with a rod of iron. That's the Christ, the Messiah. The red dragon wants to devour him. Satan tries to do that, right? Satan intended for the death of Christ to be the end of the Messiah. I don't know if Satan was thinking the same as most of the Jews at the time, but they thought if someone claimed to be a Messiah and he died, he must not be the Messiah. They kept thinking that the Christ would have to live forever. Well, that's what we believe. Christ does live forever. But they did not put in the idea of the death, burial, and resurrection into that thinking. 
So the child that was caught up to the throne with God, and we see that. So that again shows us that this king, he is holy. He's gone to be with God. He's the one called to the right hand of God. And again, a lot of this coming from Psalm 2, David's psalm about the Messiah. And the dragon could not devour him, could not consume him. And the ultimate message here is Satan could not win. And we continue to read here. I want you to look at this. A lot of people are fascinated with the book of Revelation. They'll go to this passage here, not understand much of what's going on here. But take a look at it. Revelation 12, verses 7 through 9. And it says here, And war broke out in heaven. Michael and his angels fought with the dragon. And the dragon and his angels fought. But they did not prevail. Nor was a place found for them in heaven any longer. I'm just going to stop right there. If you remember in the book of Job how Satan was the accuser and he would accuse Job and accuse others. In the book of Revelation you have that. You have him making accusations against Christians. That's the idea of what Satan means as one who accuses. And so he used to be able to be in the presence of God in heaven despite his sins and and fallen nature. He also, what appears that third of of the stars being drawn from heaven is a symbolism of the number of angels who have followed after him, the wicked ones who are with him. And so you have a picture here. Christ goes into heaven. Michael is there with the angels. Satan no longer has presence there. He can't make accusations against Christians because Christ is now at the right hand of God. That's the meaning we're getting here. And then whether this battle is literal or or not, Satan is cast out. He is no longer any place in heaven. And you might be thinking, okay, that's a good thing. Well, yes it is, because Christ is conquered. But then we get a warning in the rest of this chapter. Because now Satan has been cast down to earth, and evidently he's angry. And so he wars on the woman who is pregnant. He wars against Israel. He wars against Christians. We see that down in, in, in chapter 12 in the last verse. He makes war on them. And so it says the great dragon was cast out, and we see who this is, the serpent of old. We read about in the, in the book of Genesis about the serpent deceiving. Called the devil and Satan who deceives the whole world, he was cast to the earth, and his angels were cast out with him. And now, something that I've been bringing up before, is throughout the book of Revelation, we see from chapter 1 to chapter 19 and 20, All those things happening in the first century. That is my perspective in understanding the text. Okay, it's happening in the first century, something similar to that in the following centuries. And then in chapter 20, we see that Satan's going to try the same, do the same thing again. So there is going to be a re, you know, something similar in, in repetition to what we read in the book of Revelation about this persecution that came upon Christians in the first century. So I'd encourage you to take an historical perspective on reading. Revelation. So we see the devil here, the serpent of old. He's called the devil and Satan. He's the one who's cast out, who deceives the whole world. He's cast the earth, and the angels were cast out with him, and the effects of that. And you might be thinking, how can there, again, how can there be a war in heaven? And here, I guess you could say that it's more of the entrance, because he doesn't, he's not allowed entrance actually into heaven. And he is, he is no longer has that access because Christ is at the right hand of God. And as we read these things, these, the symbolism here is to encourage us. It's to tell us that God, Christ is at the right hand of God. He intercedes for us. When we're going through trials and heartaches, when people are slandering us or speaking against us, Christ is at the right hand of God. 
He intercedes for us. We read that in Romans chapter 8. To add to that, the Holy Spirit is too. He intercedes, speaking to the Father, asking for our blessings. The great things that come from being a Christian is that God knows what we're going through. He's aware of it. And not only that, Christ is with us. The Holy Spirit is with us. And we are strengthened by what they give us. No matter what we endure. You've ever, have you ever been slandered before? You know, maybe in a place of occupation, or maybe you think back in, in school, you ever had somebody speak bad against you, gossip, things like that. Uh, maybe because you're a Christian, because you're not willing to compromise what you believe in. And if you look back on it, at least from my experience, God has always delivered me from, from things like that. Uh, yes, I go through them, and I go through hard times, and someone might say something about me, but I know I'm going to stay faithful, and that God will do the vindication. He's going to make things right. I think about examples in the Bible, and I think about Joseph. I think about the things he went through. How his brothers didn't like him and sold him into slavery. And then in the process of being enslaved, he's accused of um, trying to rape his master's wife. And so he's imprisoned for years. You're talking about the slander and what he must have gone through, the things he had to endure, and God's providence of bringing him to where he needed to be. God blessed him. And as Christians, we should be seeing that. Let's go on a little bit further in Revelation chapter 12 and look at verse 10. What we see here in the event that Satan is cast out of heaven, Christ is at the right hand of the throne of God, he has ascended to God, is the kingdom has come. And as John said in the very beginning, he says, I'm a part of the kingdom. I'm a partner with you in the kingdom of God. Revelation 12 and verse 10 says, Then I heard a loud voice from heaven saying, Now salvation and strength, the power of salvation, the victory of Christ has come. The kingdom of our God, the power of His Christ have come. For the accuser, notice that, the accuser, Satan, of our brethren, who accused them before God day and night has been cast out. No longer can he make these accusations and say these things. He has no place with God anymore. No place in, that pla- in, in heaven to make accusations, um, to bring blame on somebody, or to point out you know, our sins and, and faults. No, it is Christ at the right hand, interceding, praying. That is, He's there on our behalf, speaking on our behalf. And so salvation has come in the result. That's what we're reading here in Revelation 12. Let's keep reading here. And so what does that mean for us? Part of our scripture reading this morning is, as Aaron read for us, Revelation 12, verse 11 and 12. It says, And they overcame him by the blood of the Lamb. And so now that Satan is cast down, what has happened here? So Christ has given us the strength, the ability, that those accusations, those who have been accused, well, now the blood of Christ washes away their sins. They stand holy before God because Christ died the death that we deserve. He paid the price for our sins, and our sins are forgiven. Colossians 1 says we've been made holy because of Him. And so there's no one that can accuse us. Now we follow Christ. We live a pure, a faithful, and holy life. And so, and they came, overcame Him by the blood of the Lamb and by the testimony of the Word. We want to hold to that. We want to hold to what Christ has done, the victory that He accomplished in the cross and in the resurrection. What He accomplished and what He has given us by the Word of the Gospel. By God's Word, that's where we, we're able to stand against evil. And he says, and they did not love their lives to the death. They were willing to die for what they believed in because they had ultimate hope of salvation, of the final resurrection, of eternal life with Christ. He says, therefore, 
Rejoice, O heavens. Rejoice for this event. This is a reason to be happy. He says, and you who dwell in them. And then he says this. So those in heaven are rejoicing, but he says, woe, warning. Woe to the inhabitants of the earth and the sea, for the devil has come down to you. And so what we get here in the rest of Revelation, especially in uh, 12 and 13, is a warning of what they're going to face. What's going to happen? We're going to talk about that a little bit more in a moment. But we have the warning. He says, for the devil has come down to you having great wrath. He's angry because he knows that he has a short time. He knows that it's not going to last. He's, he's lost. He no longer has his place to accuse the brethren. So we're going to talk about that a little bit further. But when Satan could not destroy Israel, and we keep reading here in Revelation 12 and verse 17, it says he turns to make war on the Christians, on the saints. Look with me there in, in Revelation 12, verse 17. Then the dragon became furious with the woman, because he couldn't destroy her, and went off to make war on the rest of her offspring, on those who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus. And he stood on the sand of the sea. And so Satan now is wanting to war against Christians at this point, what we're reading here in the book of Revelation. So what happens? What happens with this war in the saints? Well, his weapon is, is he takes a man, a ruler of the nations. We read about in Revelation 17. This is one of the rulers, uh, the Caesars of Rome. And they persecute Christians. And I want you to listen to the detail that's given here in the book of Revelation about what's going to happen. I'm not going to read all the way through Revelation 13, but I want to share with you some points from it this morning. There's this war on the saints, those who hold to the testimony of Jesus and keep his commandments. That's a description of what it means to be a Christian. So John depicted the beast rising from the sea. He has seven heads. Okay, if you go over to Revelation 17, this explains this. That there's a city that sits on seven hills. That's the representation there of Rome. And you can get more of that in, in Revelation 17. The ten, ten uh, horns bearing crowns, those are ten kings. Meaning the nations of the earth are following after this beast, this man. He is a king of kings. Now I, I recognize the Bible says there's one king of kings and one lord of lords. But he's trying to take that position. He has that power over the world and over the kings. He has made himself an emperor. That's the definition of an emperor. Someone who is a king over kings. So Satan the dragon gave power. So Satan does this. He gives his power, his throne, his authority to this beast to rule over all the nations, to bring about a persecution. And the world, what did the world do? It says here, and you keep reading in Revelation 13, they worship the beast. They worship his image. They admire him. And in Rome, they did worship the emperor. They made images to him and they bowed down to him. Today, people don't worship politicians, do they? Do they? Do they worship certain political figures? Do they worship the government as though it's sort of a god to them to provide what they need? There are a lot of people that are like that, that are, are infatuated with that. And they... In, a, in such a way that I would think that there are certain political figures they would just worship. Certain individuals. They do that. So the world, it says, worship the dragon and worship the beast. And how do they worship Satan here? Well, they're, they're worshiping 
the one who is ruling over the world, claiming that he's God. And so when he bears the name of a blasphemous name, it's again saying he claims to be God, and he speaks blasphemy against God. And this is the man, the Antichrist, who is coming and persecuting Christians. And a part of that is, is there's another beast mentioned in Revelation 13, often called the, the false prophet. You can read more about him in chapter 16. And if you do your reading this week, this is what I want you to do. The reason I'm covering this the way that I am is because I want you to go and read Revelation. I want you to read Revelation 12 through 16 this week and put these things together and look at it. Because in one sense, it, 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 it helps me to know what the thread is. You know, when you get ready to, when you're as an athlete getting ready to play against another team, you prepare, you get ready, you train for it, you learn about the other team. And so this is what John is giving or God's giving through John. It's like, I want you to know what's about to happen. I want you to be ready for it because I want you to stand your ground. I'm going to tell you how. And it's a very simple plan. You keep following God's commandments. You hold to the gospel, to the testimony of God's word, and you will be victorious. Revelation 13 and verse 12 talks about this false prophet, another beast. He exercises all the authority of the first beast in his presence. In other words, when he's near the beast, he, can, he has authority. So he's not it's the same, but he assumes it. He causes the earth and those who dwell in it to worship the first beast. That's his mission. Who is this? Well, historically, especially when you know, um, John is writing the seven churches of Asia, Ephesus is a seat of where people worship the emperor and worship rulers. Ancient Greece, they would worship their rulers. Alexander the Great was worshipped as a god. That's the way that they thought of their rulers. And so he, this is the imperial cult. They're saying worship the emperor and causes the earth and those who dwell on the earth to worship the first beast whose deadly wound was healed. So there's a picture of this beast who's been wounded and yet he still lives as though he's been healed. And I think the application is right that Nero's already dead at this point. He's when we read about in Revelation 17. But there's coming an eighth king who's going to be just like him, who's going to persecute Christians in a very similar fashion. I want you to look at this. This one has a lot of application, especially in history. Revelation 13, 16 and 17 talks about the false beast. He causes all, both small and great, rich and poor, free and slave, to receive a mark on their hand and on their foreheads. I don't believe this is literal. And again, it's symbolism. And that no one may buy or sell except one who has the mark or the name of the beast or the number of his name. And so what does this, this mean? Well, again, back in that society in the cities, the government had control of the marketplace. And whoever had, who could sell there, that's, they got entrance by paying their tax. They pay their due. That's, that's how it worked. And so they could limit the people who came in to, do, to buy and sell. And what was their limitation? On Wednesday night, we talked about one of the governors of um, Rome. His name was Pliny the Younger. Pliny the Younger writes these letters, and he writes to the emperor Trajan. And he says, I'm going to do what Domitian did. Remember, Domitian is this murderous emperor. And he writes, and he says this, he says, I'm going to do this. I'm going to bring these so-called Christians who are meeting together in secret. I'm going to put them to the test and see if they're loyal to Rome. If they're loyal to Rome, they will burn incense to the emperor and pour out wine to him. They'll worship him and adore him. And then they'll worship the pantheon of the Roman gods. 
And what did the Christians do? I think we know mostly what they did. They said, no, we're not going to do that. And what did Pliny do with them? He had them executed. They were excluded. And a part of this is that those who did not worship the beast, did not worship the emperor, were excluded. They couldn't buy or sell. They couldn't go into the market. And their livelihood was in many ways cut off. Is that happening today? Are people, Christians, being forced to stand for what they believe in and, and losing their own businesses or their jobs? Um, it's happening more outside of the United States, but we, co- we commonly hear about it in the news now. And someone refusing to go along with some immoral activity loses their job or that they're marked and try to shut their business down or they're sued. Uh, and that's just a little bit. What we're seeing, what these Christians would endure was such a great thing. But they're being prepared for that. Prepared to stand against this wickedness and evil in the world. At this point, I want to look at a few things for us to apply to us individually. As Christians, we are in a war. The Bible tells us that. So many descriptions in the New Testament about the conflict that we're in. And the Bible always telling us to be ready and be prepared. And I'm concerned that many of us, and some in here, are not ready. You're not prepared. You're not training. And you're not committed. And I do anything I can to encourage you in that. You know, when I think about that, I think about what Paul says in Ephesians, and he says we're in a struggle. Not against flesh and blood. We're not in an actual like uh, physical war, but we're in a spiritual battle against evil. And so he tells them there, my favorite description from Ephesians chapter 6, you know, it gives the whole armor of God. Remember reading that? The armor of God, the sword, the shield, the shield of faith, the sword of the word of God. Our children know about it very well. But my favorite part is verse 10, the very first verse where it tells you to stand by the strength that God gives you. I'm always fascinated watching... Um, videos on military education online and things like that and where technology is going. And I've always liked the, um, more been more fascinated with these suits that they come up with that give soldiers potentially in the future the ability to run faster and jump higher and things like that. It always fascinated me. And as I read these things, and there might be certain things that stand out to you, a lot of times it's the sword of the spirit or that I've got to have a shield of faith or I need the helmet of salvation. I want you to look at that and think about where is my weakness? What do I need to train in? How am I going to stand in that day when I'm persecuted, when I've got to stand up for my faith? I want to share with you some other scriptures and we'll come back to that thought. But listen to what Christ has done. I love Hebrews chapter 2, verses 14 and 15. And the text says this, the writer says, Inasmuch then as the children have partaken of flesh and blood. In other words, we're flesh and blood. God has decided to do something by sending Christ. So he himself, Christ, likewise shared in the same. He came in the flesh and blood. He came as in a man. God in the flesh. Why? Because that's the only way that he could conquer what was against us. Death. It says that through death, he might destroy him who had power of death. That is the devil. That's a lot of what we've been reading today from Revelation 12. That Christ is destroying the power of the devil. And release those who through fear of death were all their lives subject to bondage. I love that as a Christian, not having a fear of death, knowing the victory is in Jesus Christ. Here's another passage here, 1 Peter 
Peter is writing to churches who are being persecuted under Nero. They're being persecuted under Nero. And a lot of times this passage right here is taken out of context. You hear about Satan being going around like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. Looking at the context of what Peter is writing, I don't think he's specifically talking um, about temptations to sin. That's going to be part of it. But his main focus is that these Christians are being persecuted. So what does he say to them? He says, I want you to be sober, clear-minded, don't be drunk. I want you to be vigilant, uh, vigilant, and you know, passionate, endeavoring, striving forward, never giving up. He says, because your adversary, the devil, walks around like a roaring lion. He's waking, he's looking for the weak one. You've watched the videos on, uh, on TV about the lion hunting, you know, the gazelle. They're always running down the slow one, the weak one. And so here, the roaring lion seeking whom he may devour, seeking those who are weak. Peter says, resist him, steadfast in the faith, knowing that the same sufferings, notice it's the same sufferings, are experienced by your brotherhood in the world. Everybody throughout the world is experiencing this suffering with you. Your brothers in Christ, brothers and sisters in the church are enduring this. He says, but may the God of all grace, who called us to his eternal glory by Christ Jesus, after you have suffered a while, perfect, establish, and strengthen, and settle you. And I love these words here because I'm hearing a lot what Peter is saying is what John's revealing in Revelation. And we need to be strong. As we're about to finish this morning, I want you to think about this. Faithful saints... We take part, and we're a part of a blessing. We take part of the greatest triumph in history. You think about in the day of judgment when we stand before God and a lot of the foolish people who have ignored Him or, or, or ignored Jesus or ignored His teaching, ignored what God was offering to them, a life that is filled with purpose and meaning, ignored the idea and the blessing of salvation and, and following Jesus. But we get a part of that. We're part of the victory that rejoicing on that final day. And I know this is true, and maybe you, you might feel, I just don't know if I have enough strength. I don't know if I have the ability to stand up or to stand against Satan. And I know this, what the Bible says, God is faithful. That is, He's faithful and trustworthy to us. And He's given us strength, and He's given us armor to stand to defeat the evil that we're going to face. I want to leave you with this passage. It's a section from Ephesians chapter 6 about spiritual warfare and the armor of God. Ephesians 6, verses 10 through 12. I'd encourage you to finish the reading on your own. But listen to what Paul says. He says, finally, my brethren. He's come down to the end. He says, be strong in the Lord and in the power of His might. Put on the whole armor of God. Not part of it. Put on the whole armor of God. Why? That you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. But we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, and against the rulers of the darkness of this age, against spiritual hosts of wickedness in the heavenly places. And what he means by the heavenly places there and the spiritual places. 
we're in a spiritual war. And I'm afraid that many of my brothers and sisters in Christ are not prepared. You read through that list and you look through Ephesians chapter 6, I hope that you take courage that God has given you strength and He's given you a way. And that if you become a faithful part of the church, that if you join in in training and preparation, that you will be a disciple. As the Bible says, we're made disciples when we've been baptized into Christ. I want to encourage you this morning, you can do that. You can give your life over to Christ. You can be a part of the church because that's what we're about. It's making disciples. Making soldiers of Christ who stand up against evil, who are able to proclaim the gospel. We're able to use the armor of God and to help others to do the same. That's our mission. And I think as we read over Revelation, we see how important that mission is. If you don't think you're prepared to overcome the evil, I want to encourage you to become a disciple of Christ. And you start like this. Matthew chapter 28, Jesus says this, to begin in being a disciple, a follower, a student of Jesus Christ. He says to his apostles, he says, Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Excuse me. He says, Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things that I've commanded you. Behold, I'm with you even to the end of the age. This morning, if you haven't been baptized into Christ, if you've fallen away and you're not a faithful disciple, come back. Be a part of the church. Be a part of study. Let's pray together. Let's encourage one another to stand up against the evil that's around us. I encourage you to come right now while we sing. Please come.